pointer, Peter, I have not seen your sister since that car accident. Is everything all right? Okay. We, does she need another car? Uh, you tell her I asked about her, and uh, we got to find out how we can help her with that. All right. Luke chapter 3. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this day that you've created and you've given to us. You give good gifts. And even as we walk through various trials and challenges, we thank you that you will never leave us and you will not forsake us. You will not put more on us than we can bear. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you as we sing today. And we can cast on you our cares because you care for us. So, Lord, would you strengthen your people? Would you continue to lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake? And as we talk today from your word, as usual, we need you to help the preacher and to help the hearer and to help all of us apply the things that we're hearing. So, Holy Spirit, have your way. Thank you that we could sing today. Open our hearts. Open our ears. Open our eyes to not only see things about heaven and the kingdom that we may not have seen or known, but help us to see things about our own community and the people that we are called to serve that we may have never felt or seen or heard before. So strengthen me with grace to teach well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. The Bible reads... Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Helen. So when you look at verse 23, you see that Jesus was about 30 years old when he started his public ministry on earth. Now, that is an approximation. That is not an exact age reference. He was about 30. And so for so many years, I said that Jesus started his ministry at age 30. Uh, he ministered in the scriptures. There are, are at least three Passovers recorded in scripture. So three years, 33 years is when he passed away, gave up his life, um, only to take it back on Sunday. Uh, but this is an approximation. Jesus may have been well over 30 when he started his ministry. He may have been slightly under 30 when he started his ministry. But the point is, he started his ministry, and I'm so glad about it. Uh, but I do have an opening question for you, and that is, why do you think Jesus waited so long to begin his earthly ministry? Why do you think he waited so long? The Bible says he began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Well, within Luke's gospel account, as he is giving his testimony to the noble Theophilus, Luke, who will also write the book of Acts, he's trying to put an account together. Others at that time had written various gospel accounts so Dr. Luke decided that he would write one too for this gentleman named Theophilus, and he wanted to put things in order from his vantage point. 
And in Luke's gospel, there is an emphasis on Christ being the son of man. When you read Matthew's gospel, there's an emphasis on Christ being the king of the Jews. Mark emphasizes Christ as a servant. Luke, son of man. John, the son of God. So all of these gospels bring together a picture of Jesus Christ that we cannot see just by reading one gospel narrative alone. We need all of them to get a picture of Christ. And even with the four gospels, we still don't see it all or know it all about Christ because the book of John closes by saying, if all the things that Christ did were recorded in a book, the world could not contain the volumes. So he's so wonderful like that. But we're grateful for each gospel account. And Luke lets us know with Jesus that he starts us off with the birth of Christ. And then he takes us up to when Christ is 12 years old. And that is in Luke chapter 2, verse 42. And this is not an approximation, but he says actually that Christ was 12 years old when he decided to stay behind in Jerusalem during Passover. His parents probably traveled in a caravan, as many of the Jews did, as they would come from Galilee into Jerusalem to celebrate the three main feasts every year. And so as they were going back home up north, they assumed that Jesus was in the party with the rest of the family. But after a day or two, they recognized he wasn't there. They doubled back and found him in the temple, sitting with the lawyers and all of the uh, scholars, listening and asking questions. And they were marveling at his teaching and his knowledge. Now, in the Jewish culture, a boy becomes a man at the age of 12. That's the whole bar mitzvah celebration. And so Jesus was not being insubordinate by not staying with his parents. Technically, in that culture, he was a man. Do not let your 12-year-old boys hear that this morning. But in that culture, he stayed behind. And so what we see is from the age of 12 until about the age of 30, there's this silent period where Luke does not tell us about Jesus' teenage years. Now, there are many fanciful, uh, non-canical gospel writings that try to fill in the gap years of Jesus, where he's flying around and he's turning uh, uh, mud into actual doves and things like that, all kind of things. These apocrypha gospels and these gospels that were not added to the canon. Uh, but what we see is that from Luke's vantage point, from the age of 12 until about 30, Nothing is mentioned about the upbringing of Jesus Christ. So why do you think Jesus waited so long to begin his earthly ministry? Number one, was it because of culture? Was it for cultural reason? What, what was happening in those 18 years plus, from the age of 12 to about 30? What was going on? Well, in the Hebraic culture, the age 30 appears to be a benchmark of qualification for certain ministries, positions, and offices. So the age of 30 in that culture seemed to be a benchmark for qualification for certain positions and offices. Uh, to be a prophet, many of the prophets, according to Ezekiel chapter 1, may have started at the age of 30. Uh, then also priests, if you wanted to be a priest, and you were in the, the lineage of Levi, and within the lineage of Levi, there were various family members and tribes that had responsibilities in the tabernacle. 
And so to be a Levite, the Bible makes it very, very clear to begin serving as a priest, I should say. Um, Numbers chapter 4, verse 34. Numbers 439. Numbers 433. Numbers 437. 47, rather. It was to begin at the age of 30. So these men would be able to service the tabernacle at the age of 30. And then the Bible would say upwards to the age of 50. So in between that 20-year window, men could be qualified to serve as Levitical priests. But not only prophets beginning at the age of 30 and priests at the age of 30, but we know one king in particular who began his reign at the age of 30, and that is King David. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4 says that David began reigning at the age of 30. He reigned for 40 years, so he lived up to the age of 70, and he fell asleep. So within the Hebraic culture, the age 30 has meaning. It has meaning. But also, could this speak of the sovereignty of God, that Jesus started his ministry at about the age of 30? Because with God, when we talk about his sovereignty, we're talking about his rule and his reign. Um, Even as we sang today and as we heard a testimony today, God is in control of all things. Even when things feel out of control, he reigns. And that's what we always need to say to ourselves, remind ourselves that although I may feel frantic, the king is not frantic as he sits upon the throne in heaven. He sits high. He always looks low. He's not worried. He knows the end from the beginning because he is the beginning and the end. So our king, our God is sovereign. He reigns. He rules with all authority. And as such, everything he does is calculated. Even though we have free will and we live in a world that is subject to free will, God somehow mysteriously works perfectly through his sovereign will. And so therefore, God's timing is always impeccable. You can bank on him. You can count on him. He has a plan. He has a timetable. And so Jesus was born at just the right time. Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And when Jesus came into the world, the then known world, uh, the languages were converging around this thing called Koine Greek or common Greek. Uh, The road system would make the travel with the gospel a little bit easier than before because the Romans had built this uh, wonderful road system and sailing was underway. So Jesus came at the right time for the gospel message to go out. And of course, we knew he was born, or rather we know he was born at the right place in Bethlehem. There were two Bethlehems back then. He was born in the smallest one, the city of David. God had all of it, and he still has everything under complete control. And we also know that Jesus died at the right time. He died as the Passover lamb during Passover week. And so he just didn't die, you know, in September or some other time. No, there was a moment because Jesus was fulfilling scripture. And so at the time when the Jewish people celebrated Passover, when the death angel passed over because of the blood of the lamb that was shed to save the Israelites, the lamb of God shed his blood to take away the sins of the world once and for all for those who put their trust in Jesus. Has anyone put their trust in Jesus? Are you bearing your sin or has he already borne your sin? That's the good news. He already bore it. And death must pass over us. It loses its sting because of Christ. 
And so sovereignly, he was born at the right time. Sovereignly, he died at the right time. So it is plausible to consider his ministry started at the exact time that God ordained at about 30 years old. Well, I have another answer, another possible answer for why he waited so long to begin his earthly ministry, that he didn't start at the age of 20 or 25, how in our culture we feel like our kids are ready to go grab, you know, the world by the horns and just go. No, he waited till about 30 to manifest himself and begin his ministry. And I'd like to say, thirdly, it may have been because he was busy building relationships, Oh, yeah, hang with me today. This is, I love this. You see, it takes time. It takes time to establish credibility and to build relationships. Uh, For those of you who are in marriage relationships where it is a blended family and you inherited children when you got married to your spouse, it takes time to build that relationship. And for children, they always spell love, L-O-V-E. They spell it T-I-M-E. It just takes time to establish credibility and to build relationships. So I believe that during that window of time from 12 to about 30, Jesus was building relationships with his Jewish brothers and sisters. Turn over to Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Talks about how Jesus had... Grown up in Nazareth with his parents. And it says in verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So what was going on for those 18 years plus? He was increasing in favor with God and men. Now again, this is a mystery. How can God increase in favor with God? Well, this is looking at the humanity of Christ, that Christ was growing as a man And he was increasing in favor with his father. But also he was increasing in favor with men. And so he lived in community with the people he came to save. And so the Bible says in John 1.14 that Christ, the word, became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the father. And this Jesus was full of grace and truth. So he tabernacled. He lived amongst the people, and they beheld his glory. They were able to touch and see and hear the Son of God. He was one of them. He came to his own. Now, he could have come on the scene the way Melchizedek came on the scene back in the day. Remember when Abram had come from the battle of the kings, and he has all of this uh, ransom and things that he's gotten from defeating the kings. He's got all this money now. And commerce. And as he comes back, there's this man who appears from out of nowhere. And his name is Melchizedek. And he is the king of Salem or Shalom, the king of peace. And he meets Abram and he has bread and wine, which kind of lets us think about communion, bread and wine. And when he comes, the Bible says he's a priest of God. Now, the priesthood hasn't technically begun yet because that's going to come under Moses. And so Abram is there. There's no true priesthood, but yet this guy is a priest, and the patriarch recognizes Melchizedek as he's standing there, the king of peace with bread and wine, and Abram gives him a tithe of everything that he has. 
And the Bible in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament lets us know that this Melchizedek is a type or a picture of the Messiah who is to come. Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace who offers us bread and wine, which is literally his body. And we are to give to him our best gifts, starting with at least 10%. Can somebody say amen? amen? Now, the thing about this Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews says, we don't know where it came from or where it went. He just appeared on the scene. And Abram had the wherewithal to recognize something spiritual and supernatural about this man. He was a picture of Christ. Now, Christ could have come on the scene like that, just appeared as an adult, as some conquering king riding over the hills into Jerusalem to save the people. But he did not just appear like that. No, he started off humbly. The Bible says in the book of Philippians chapter 2 that the Most High came all the way down and he took upon him the form of a man and not only any man but the lowest of a man and that is a slave, a servant. So when Jesus entered into the world, he was born to parents of meager means. He was born in poverty and reared in obscurity. Why? To identify not only with humans, but to identify with poor humans. Because there were shepherds who were living out in the field. Now, if you live outside, my, 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 and shepherds in that culture, they were not the, the higher rungs of society. They were the poorer people in culture. So the Lord allowed them to be the first ones to see Jesus as he was lying there, wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. He died. He came low. The rich became poor so that the poor could become rich. He identified with the poor. And so from there began him building relationships, growing in favor, especially with the common man, especially with the everyday person. Jesus connected with. And in the Middle Eastern culture, they are what is called a high-context culture. In that part of the world, they value interpersonal relationships. So Jesus spent time with the people that he came to serve. That was part of the culture. You know how I know that he spent time with the people? Because they knew who his family was. They knew his father's name was Joseph. They knew his mother's name was Mary. They even knew what a lot of Christians don't know, and that is Jesus had brothers and sisters. A lot of Christians don't even know that. They not only knew he had them, but the Bible records their names. And so when Jesus would do things and say things, they would kind of scratch their head and say, isn't this Joseph's son? And aren't his brothers and sisters here with us today? Because Jesus was so normal he was so regular. He was so much one of the people that when he began to make authoritative claims, when he began to make messianic claims, and when he began to do miraculous exploits, it made the normalcy of Christ that much more extraordinary because he was just one of us. And so when Judas betrayed him and brought the mob into the garden to arrest him, he wasn't, Jesus wasn't floating a head and shoulders above everybody with a halo around his head. 
He definitely wasn't standing out with black skin and braids. Neither did he have olive or white skin and blonde hair where he would easily be recognized that night. But no, Judas says, the way I can get him and let you know who he is, I'm going to kiss him because he looks just like everybody else. He, you know, he don't have a gold robe on and everybody else got on brown. No, he's chilling like everybody else. I got to kiss him for you to see him. He dwelt among the people building relationships with the people. So why did his ministry take so long to get started? He was busy building relationships. It takes time to establish credibility and to build relationships in ministry. That's with anything. And when you go to Arizona, it's going to take time for you to build relationships. But just as God led you here to this crazy group of people, he's going to lead you to another group of people. And you're going to meet Christians. You're going to meet people. And what's going to happen is the spirit is going to help bridge that gap because the spirit will bear witness. And you'll feel like you've been knowing people for years and you just meet them. He'll start opening up doors because he wants you in community more than you want to be in community. He's not making an accident sending you out there. It's by providence. Oh, he's sovereign. But that don't mean you can't come home every now and then. That don't mean you can't call a brother. You know, hey, we still fam. We still fam. That's how we do it just takes time. Jesus dwelt among the people. So today, let me talk to you about it takes time. It takes time. It takes time to do ministry the right way. It takes time. Have you ever pulled something out of the oven too soon <laughs> and, and, and tried to bite into it? And it looks good on the outside, but it is not cooked on the inside. What do you do? You put it right back in the oven because it's not ready yet. And a lot of times ministries can look good on the outside, but they're not cooked all the way through on the inside because we're so quick to try to jump out and do for God when there is a process, and I believe the God of relationships. That's why Jesus died, to give the relationship so that we could be right with God. We need to also be people of relationships in this high-tech low-touch society. All of this communication stuff going on, but we don't really get to know people in a deep way anymore. We know folk on the surface now. And so even in church, there, there are debates about, will church, these mega churches die off because people are going to start doing church at home? You know, doing church at home, looking at the internet. Now, there's a place for that if you can't get out, but nothing beats the people of God coming together, holding each other. Now, let me throw this out here, too. Let me throw this out here. I get in trouble. Now, there are many churches that do the satellite kind of thing where they forecast the pastor from one location to another location. And for a lot of people, including my friends, that, that stuff works. But, man, there's nothing like having your pastor here with you, looking in your eyeballs. There's something about that. You looking at a screen, but I'm standing right here. So it ain't like, you know, man, where, where is he at? No, I'm right here. You can look at the screen, but I'm right here. And then I look at that too to say, isn't there someone that the church can raise up to lead a congregation? Why does the pastor have to be satellite out to all of the other churches? Man, it's about relationships. I love shaking your hands after church. Uh, once I put a mint in my mouth, after preaching, you know, breath, breath get a little funky. I put a mint in my mouth. Wouldn't hurt if you put one in yours before you came to see me. I like shaking your hands. I like hugging on you, you know? We're not that big as a church. 
It's about relationships, man. And when it comes to doing outreach, when it comes to doing outreach, it takes time. Uh, so Strong Tower has this pyramid of ministry that I want to share with you quickly here. Uh, we had three outreach meetings because when we first came here uh, a year ago, uh, let's see here, August, the last Sunday in August 2013, we came here, we celebrated our anniversary the next Sunday, and then we owned this building February 23rd, 2014. And when we first got here, I kept preaching in overalls every Sunday so that it could get in our mind that we are just not here to huddle and be together just with us. Yes, there's upreach and there's inreach, but there's got to be outreach. We cannot be a part of a church that is ingrown. We must be outgrown as well. And so we kept talking about, Lord, show us the harvest field. Show us the harvest field. And how do we get out into the harvest field? Well, I want to run this down with you. Um, the first thing that we have learned is that it's all about relationships. So throw, throw that slide up, relationships. And when you serve a culture, it's imperative that you build relationships with that culture, especially if you are serving people who are from a low-income demographic because poor people have seen people come and go constantly in and out of their lives. And so, therefore, we have to build a relationship because if we don't build a relationship and that takes time, then people we serve will tend to think that we look at them as a project and we are serving them for ourselves so that we can get a pat on the back so we can take a picture next to a poor kid and then never come back and see that poor kid but we circulate that picture on our brochures and pamphlets to let people think we're building relationships with the poor folks but no 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 it's about knowing their names where they live their background what's going on uh, what does it take for you to get out of the house in the morning to get to school man it's a lot that goes on and so we can't have microwave ministries where we popping in and wait 30 seconds and then pace in front of the microwave for 30 seconds because it's taking too long. Y'all know how you do when you're on your computer. Man, I got that wheel that's spinning on my Mac. It's just taking too long. How long it take? One minute? What? It's just spinning. It's just taking too long. We don't like to slow it down because without relationships, when we do ministry, all they are is programs and projects. And nobody wants to feel like a project, especially if you live in the projects. When God's people come by, oh, here they come. They ain't going to stay here. They're coming through quickly. They're going to drop them little goodies off and keep on rolling. But no, when you go there and you stay with them, when Charles takes them baskets of hope uh, into the reservation, he goes into people's houses. When you go into somebody's house, you're touching their personhood. And they stay with people. They get to know folks' names. And so now people are looking for them every year to keep coming back. And people who may not have been listening to you four years ago, they see you keep coming. They see you keep coming. And now they're more open to the gospel and to meeting your Savior because they know you care about them. You know that old saying, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Man, relationships, it just takes time, which is why I could never work for some agency that is all about numbers, you know, how many did you baptize and how many you got in your church. Man, numbers are not always an indicator of life from God. Some man, you can have a lot of people at the circus, but what does that mean? <laughs> it ain't about how many we baptize. Because if you baptize God's person, that person is going to reach other people who can baptize other folks. It ain't about how many we can get. 
Oh, I could never make it for one of those missions groups. Oh, I would be too rebellious up in there. I would not make it. They'd be like trying to get me off the board and out of the denomination. Woo! So relationships is hard. It's hard. And so when you start getting to know people, you start getting burdened for them. The stuff that burdens them now all of a sudden begins to burden you. And you just don't make flippant comments anymore about people seeking immigration or even breaking laws to come into the nation, to, into our country, because maybe you know a couple of undocumented people and their story has in, affected you, whereby the uh, comments on Fox News or CNN by the so-called political analysts, they don't always reach you the same way they used to reach you because you got a relationship with somebody now. When your relatives start talking about those black people like the Los Angeles Clippers owner, you know, but when you got relationships with those black people, you don't look at black people the way people that don't have a relationship with black people. Are you hearing your pastor this morning? I remember when we started doing ministry back in the day, man, and I'm going into the neighborhoods, right, and this is uh, primarily African-American communities. And I'm going in there, you know, and I'm representing this big old white church, so they're looking at me a little crazy anyway. So I'm up in there, and I'm playing ball, and I'm hanging out with them. And they would say, man, I don't like white people, but I sure like Paige. Now, Paige was white. Now, the reason why they would say I don't like white people, but I like Paige, was because Paige was building relationships with them. So even as they're saying that, God is working on their prejudice by saying, you can't put all white people in a category, man, because this white person here has broken the mold in your world's view and experience. So through relationships, we get challenged. Oh, my goodness. This is good stuff. But this is why a lot of churches struggle and a lot of ministries struggle because it's not about building relationships. It's about the bottom line. It's about fulfilling numbers. Oh, boy. Oh, man. But when you hang with folk, you start getting burden for them. Then secondly, you have vision. Relationships, that's the primary uh, base of the pyramid of ministry. It takes time. It takes time. But then from relationships come vision because vision springs out of a burden. Uh, uh, Y'all started going to Haiti and, and the Vanderpools started going to Haiti. And as they developed relationships with people, they were burdened for the people, and thus a vision came for how to help and serve the people of Haiti for the long term and not just for one project. And so vision comes, and vision tells us where we need to go. Vision comes when we live among the people to see what they see. Yeah, I'm coming from the outside. I've got some vision, but man, I need your glasses. Give me your glasses so I can see what you see. Give me your ears so I can hear what you hear. Give me your heart so I can feel what you feel. Because, man, it's not enough for me just to see what I see. Because you need to see what I see. I, I see that you can graduate. I see that you can be the first from your family to break that cycle of generational poverty in your family. I've got vision for you till you can get some vision for yourself. But give me your eyes so I can see what you see. Man, that's how you have to deal. Your father did this. You grew up like that. This is going on. Oh, man. And so in community with changing glasses, in community with exchanging lenses, and I'm coming along representing the Lord, and I'm going to have vision for the people that I'm serving. Vision looks to meeting the immediate as well as the long-term needs, because without vision, Proverbs 29, 18, the people perish. Lord, send visionaries into our community. Send them out. Danny Gokey, 
with Sophia's heart. He had a vision. And when that vision hit this man to help people who are homeless, God sent the resources necessary to support the vision. But it starts with having vision. But vision comes from having relationships because when you have a relationship, you get a burden. But then you go from vision to strategy. Strategy in outreach ministry says, how will we get to where we need to go? Vision is pointing to where we need to go. But strategy says, how are we going to get there? How long is it going to take? What are some benchmarks we're going to set along the way? And then also vision says, how much is it going to cost? Vision always measures, a strategy rather, always measures resources. Remember when Jesus says, if you're going to go to war, if you're going to build a house, a tower, sit down first and estimate the cost. Put your strategy together so that you don't start something that doesn't get completed. And a lot of ministries come out of the gate, but they don't count the costs. Not only of financial resources, but manpower resources. And here's another ministry. It had a little logo, had a little saying, but it didn't think long-term. It didn't have a strategy. It didn't have goals along the way, and it just fell apart. So now the people you're coming to reach, they're skeptical. The next time somebody else comes off the bus talking about we love you and we want to serve you, they're like, okay, all right, we'll see got to have a strategy. And then when you have a strategy, this is what I'm learning. That strategy is best developed by group collaboration. It's not just about one person coming up with the ideas. It's about a team of people coming up with the ideas. Um, I am in my, I'm, I'm beginning next week, my third year of residency in my doctoral program I've got two years left. I'm at the halfway point, and I go, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus. I got, Chauncey, are you praying? Man, and I'm learning things, and I'm learning with my staff. It's not about me coming off the mountaintop with great, fresh revelation. Now, sometimes God speaks to me. As the leader, I am the first amongst equals. But I also know that I'm only as good as the people that I lead. And the people that I lead have great insight and ideas because they're on the ground in ways that I may not be on the ground. So we lead in collaboration in our staff meetings. We lead in collaboration as an elder team. And as an outreach ministry, we must do it in collaboration. Because if we pray about and come up with ideas together, we're going to work it together. But if it's one person, man, he can't do all that. She can't do all that. You've got to have a group of people with you for your strategy to work. <laughs> Is that true? Oh, I know it's true. And then finally on that pyramid, after you go from relationships, which is the most important, to vision, to strategy, now we've got action. That's the last step. It's action. But too often, Western missionary movements start with action. We jump out there and we do something again to pat ourselves on the back and say we did it. But we don't build relationships, and therefore we don't stay. We don't have sustaining success. We may have success from an event, but we haven't learned anybody's name, where they're coming from, what they really need. When you start with action, you assume you know what people need. That may not be what people need. Yeah, you're bringing them all of this stuff. Let's see, you're bringing them eyeglasses out. They don't need eyeglasses. They need Food, and here we come with eyeglasses because we know somebody that got eyeglasses. They, don't, they can see real well, and they can see you don't have no food in your hand when you're coming up in there. 
Don't bring eyeglasses when they don't need eyeglasses. It's not about busy work when it comes to action, but it's about the right work. We can't do everything, but man, we can do something. We can do something. So here's how we bring it home for Strong Towers local outreach. God's blessed us to always be involved in local ministry, national ministry, and international ministry. But as far as local ministry, God picked us up from Franklin and put us in the Forest Hills community. Lord, why? Why did you do that? He has a plan. I remember when we were at the Cool Springs Why we're praying, Lord, what do you want? We're looking all through Franklin, 16 different locations, and every door is shut in Franklin. Then my homeboy, Scott Hamilton, comes up, and he says, there's an empty building in Nashville. There's a church that's just about to leave, or they just left. Maybe you should go by there. So I told him, I said, y'all go by there and look at it. Now, I didn't want to go by there and look at it because I'm not thinking Nashville any more than other folks were thinking Nashville. But because I told Scott I would go and because I want to keep my word, I came on down here and looked with Brother Brian Patterson and Daryl Fitzgerald. We came up in here and every door was locked except one. Brian Patterson found that door, got us in this building. We broke in and looked around. <laughs> and I was like, I think this can work. This can work. And so now God was saying, okay, we're shifting. So as we were coming to this community, it's like, Lord, how can we serve this harvest field? We worked in Franklin for 18 years. How do we serve this harvest field? Well, I looked at how Paul works. And one of his strategies was whenever he would go into a new place, a new city, a new town, that brother would find the synagogue because he knew the synagogue is jumping. I get up in the synagogue, man, that's it. And so from the synagogue, he was able to minister to the entire city. Folks heard about him in them synagogues. They would come out and hear him week after week in the synagogue. So he was a synagogue buster. So I said, Lord, what's the synagogue in Forest Hills? Do I send one of our members to one of the community meetings, you know, and all that stuff. And they sit around and talk about sidewalks and entry and exits. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't know if that's the synagogue. But then it was like, wait a minute. We got schools all around here. If we can get into one of the schools and establish credibility and build relationships and simply serve, not proselytize. You know, it's nothing worse than seeing a pastor show up and, you know, all he's there for is to get you to come to his program. Uh-uh, no. I'm up in there, and I'm not looking for anybody to come to our church yet. There's a time for that. So, so, so God showed us a synagogue. He showed us a school, and it was J.T. Moore Middle School just about four miles down the road here. And it is a school with a diverse demographic. One-third is wealthy. One-third is middle income, and one-third is lower income. God gave us favor. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. He opened up a door for us to go and serve J.T. Moore Middle School. He gave us favor. Revelation 3.8, Jesus says, see, I am laying before you an open door. See it? God gave us an open door. As Lasagna went into the school, met with the principal, got me into the school to meet with the principal. Next thing I know, the spirit worked in such a way. We're praying with the principal. The principal's walking me around the school, introducing me to kids, talking about the need that they have at their school. Now, he just met me, 
and he's up there talking about how they need mentors and tutors. And I'm like, this looks like a door that God has opened. He's pulling kids out of classes to come talk to me because they have been praying. We need some black men to help just stand in the hallway if nothing else. Our kids need to see some role models, stuff we take for granted. Other folks say, man, we, we need it. So that brother's walking me through the school at JT Moore, and I'm meeting these kids. Man, my heart is breaking, and I'm like, Lord, you have opened up a door here. So for the past three months, I have been going up every Thursday when I'm in town, and I have lunch with the kids at JT Moore. Now, I don't eat none of the food just yet, but I have lunch. <laughs> Y'all know about them school lunches. I look at some of them plates, I'm like, Lord, have mercy. How do they do it? But I guess, you know, if this is your only meal of the day or your best meal, you eat that mystery meat and that surprise. But right now, my faith has not strengthened to the place where I can eat their lunches. When I eat their lunches, I will really become one of them. But right now, I eat before I come or after I leave. Right now, oh, Lord, have mercy. Help me, Father. And so we were in the men's ministry one night, and Tom Ziegler says, Pastor, J.T. Moore is in this scholarship program to try to get $25,000 from Bridgestone so that they can build a greenhouse on their property. So he gave me the piece of paper. I said, cool. And it's one of those things where you can vote every day, once a day, so that they can get the most votes and then get the greenhouse money. But they're in competition with uh, schools all over the country. So I said, man, oh, yeah, I'm going to tell the church about this. That was Wednesday night. On Thursday, I go into the school, do my thing, and right before I leave, Miss Gray, who is the secretary in the school, she runs out of the building after me with a handful of these little flyers. She said, would your church help us get this $25,000? I looked at Miss Gray and said, we already know about that, and I'm going to tell my church this Sunday so they can start voting. So she's like, y'all already know? I'm like, yeah, we know, because we really want to serve in this school. Because if you hit this school right, you get this community. You hit that school right, that principal talks to another principal who talks to another principal, and we send in teams into schools to be mentors and to be tutors, to be people who just serve and love the kids. So my goodness. And so, so as a result of the favor, as a result of the favor, and I need y'all to keep on getting online and voting. There's a school in Michigan that has us beat right now. Get online and vote. So as a result of this favor, the TCAP exam is this week. And uh, one kid this week told me that TCAP st stands for Tennessee Child Abuse Program. <laughs> I said, little homie, I said, little homie, that, that ain't what TCAP stands for. Little homie. <laughs> so TCAP is real serious, you know. And so Lasagna had this idea, why don't we go in there and do an assembly for the students and for the faculty. And we go in there with John Hancock Band, and we just sing some songs. Not Christian songs, but man, just some good songs. And that I would come and give an inspirational message. Not preaching, but inspirational message. He approved that thing, and we were scheduled to go in tomorrow at 3 o'clock and have this assembly. Again, look at the favor. But he notified us this morning that there is a tornado watch that's coming into the area and it's going to hit around that time. And so he said, I, I am so sorry, but I have to cancel that because I don't know what the conditions are going to be. 
So we were positive. We're like, man, that's cool. Why? Because we're here for the long haul. We, we, we ain't going nowhere. We are here with you. But I sat there thanking God for the favor that he gave us, that he would entrust his students to this church. And, and dig this. I told the kids. I said, now, look here now. Uh, I told them Thursday. I said, we're coming up in here Monday, and, and we're going to encourage y'all so you can take these tests. And I said, I'm going to bring one of my friends with me from the Tennessee Titans. They said, oh, Tennessee Titans. And, and by this time now, they're all gathering around me. Now, when I first went up in there, I felt like boo-boo the fool. I didn't have nobody to sit with, nobody to talk to. They looking at me like, who are you? Whose daddy are you? I ain't nobody's daddy. I'm just coming over here trying to get to know y'all. I felt goofy. Thursday after Thursday, I felt goofy. But then after a while, I started getting in. I remember the name. I remember this kid. And so, so I told him, I said, man, one of the Titans has come. I said, but I can't tell you who it is. So I pulled this boy aside, and I'm talking to him. I said, I can't tell you who it is. He said, oh, please tell me who is it. I said, all right, man, I'm going to tell you, but you can't tell nobody. <laughs> I said, it's, it's Bernard Pollard. Oh, Bernard Pollard's going. I said, yeah, man, but don't say nothing. So I, and I knew he was going to say something. <laughs> so I walk away from him, and I come back over, and there's a group waiting on me. Uh, 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 so Bernard Pollard's coming. <laughs> and so I looked at little man. I said, little man, why you tell? And he said, I didn't tell. I only gave them the initials, and they figured it out. <laughs> so, man, God's doing the work at J.T. Moore Middle. And dig this. And Felicia said, I know a lot of attention goes to the students, but what about the teachers? How about let's put some goodie bags together for all of the teachers and all the administration, and let's bless them. And so we made those goodie bags. Y'all got all the supplies. And so we asked the principal, can we at least bring the goodie bags? And he said, absolutely. So we're serving. There have been times we've come in there with boxes of underwear. I need to bring some belts because I see them boys' boxes that do have underwear. You know, it takes time. It takes time. My God, I'm so excited, man. And then from there, man, we have a clothes closet. Because people need clothes in that school and in this community. So we have an old trailer sitting out here that we are renovating to make it a traveling clothes closet. And so we'll be able to pull up to the school or anywhere and have clothes in there. And we're talking about good clothes. We ain't talking about stuff that got holes in it that you wouldn't wear. No, we're talking about stuff that it hurts you to give that up. Them shoes or that suit, it hurts you to give it up. So, so we're going to continue to develop that. Some of you have already given us clothes straight from a boutique. We have people giving us clothes. Man, man, God is working. And so when that word get out that they give you good stuff, they serve you, and they don't make you sign a list, they don't make you feel bad, they just there to bless you, my God. And then from the clothes closet, there's a food pantry. And so we've been collecting food. We distribute the food. Lasagna takes food up there to the students because there are kids who go home. It's hard to do homework when your stomach's growling. It's hard to do homework when you don't have breakfast. So we do something because something is better than nothing. Can somebody say amen? Amen. And the more we learn the people, the more we understand the needs, we'll be better able to meet those needs. Well, all right, Pastor, I hear you. Okay, you, you talk about Sophia's heart and down the street. What about these rich folk in this neighborhood here? Well, memo, everybody living in this neighborhood may not be rich. They may be house broke. You may roll up in there, and they may not have a stitch of furniture in that house, and they're struggling to make payments. But they live here in this community. How do we serve this Jerusalem? Well, on June 29th, 
we're having community day. Now, you know it as family day. If you were with us back at the People's Church, we'd have family day on every fifth Sunday in the summer where we pull out all the games and the kids are doing slip and slide. There are bouncy games. There's food. Brothers are grilling up hot dogs and hamburgers. And we're going to do that. But we're opening it up to this community. And so now somebody said, now, now how and why would they come over here to us? Well, we're going to send out a mailer first. And you know, to send mailers costs a lot of money, but Strong Tower never had a reason to do mailers because we never had a place to invite people to come to. We do a mailer back in the day. We might be at the factory. Uh, we might be at the, uh, you got to catch us. But now we got a spot. So we send a mailer out. But how do you differentiate your mailer from every other, every other church's mailer that goes out? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Oh, my goodness. Let's just say. June 29th, on family day, we send the mailer out and we say to the community that Scott Hamilton will be sharing his testimony in the morning service at 10, Olympic gold medalist. Now, y'all got to excuse me. I hardly ever use the people's platforms in this church for the church. If you know me well, you know that if we have celebrities and famous people here that I, I hardly ever use them, but every now and then I got to come knocking. I need your name. I need your platform. Scott Hamilton will be our morning speaker on June 29th. Somebody out there say, Scott Hamilton, I remember him in that 1980 Olympics. I remember him. <laughs> and then I say, um, Bernard, I need you to bring me a couple of Titans out here to sign some stuff. And then we put on the flyer, we got some Titans who will sign. And Bernard will share his testimony of how he met the Lord. Oh, they got some Titans. Then we got free food. We got bouncy games. Oh, man, we got the Vespers. Maybe they'll do an outdoor concert on that day. I don't know, but watch out. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Now, to get the house ready, though, we, 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 do, we got a, some work to do in the house. Uh, so we got some work days planned, three work days, June 14th, 21st, and 28th, because we got to do some gardening and stuff. And some of y'all got green thumbs, and y'all been walking to church. You say, man, we need some flowers out there. Well, it's time now for you to come and plant some flowers on one of those days. We got some people who can build shelves into that trailer that we're renovating. And for the food pantry, there's a closet we're going to use that we need to put shelving in. And you guys that are always looking to tear stuff up, you go to sleep with your work belt on. We need you to come up in here in your church on those work days and get to work. We got a playground out here that needs to be cleared. And, and man, oh, and there's another thing I can't even tell you about that, but we got some that may want to help us with that playground is come. I want to put some basketball hoops out in the, in the, uh, in the uh, parking lot, you know, just so we can get out there. Y'all see the crossover skills so we can get out there. Oop, hurt myself. But, but when we get out there and just shoot with the kids, man, let this be the spot for kids to come. So that's on June 29th, family day. Man, 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 I'm so excited. Can't you tell? Well, in conclusion, it takes time to do ministry. It takes time to do ministry the right way. It takes time to build relationships. We are in this for the long haul as a church. So we are not in it for projects or programs. We are here to build relationships and serve people well, whether they come to Christ or not. Hopefully they will see our acts of love and mercy and want to come to Christ uh, but we'll see. That, that's up to God. We will serve. Now, we will not be ashamed of the gospel. When he gives us opportunities to present it, we will. 
but man, it just takes time. Well, yesterday, yesterday, thousands of people ran in the Music City Marathon. Can you put that slide up, please? Thousands of people ran in the Music City Marathon. They came from far and wide. I heard Coach Bill Belichick was in town running at the Music City Marathon. And then you saw the wonderful Jones family representing Powered for Hope for New Hope Academy to raise money for the school. 5K, 13.1K, 26.2K. Janetta, what K did you do? Five. <laughs> Praise the Lord. You did five. That's five more than I did. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Raising money, right? Folks were out now. The thing about a marathon is that you got to take time to train for the marathon before you run or walk the marathon, or you're going to get out there and hurt yourself. So it takes time. And then it takes time to walk or run the marathon itself. Notice it's called the Music City Marathon, not the Music City Sprint. Oh, a sprint don't take no time. You can run a sprint even when you're out of shape. I remember years ago, we were at the skating rink, and Chauncey and I raced at the skating rink. We took our shoes off, or maybe you took your shoes off because you're from the country, and we raced in the skating rink. You remember that, Chauncey? Who, who, who won that sprint? You did. That's not how I remember the story. I thought I won that race, man. But you can run a sprint, man. You only have to be in shape. And then the thing about a sprint, if it's a 100-yard dash, man, it's 10 seconds. Boom, you know. Back in the day when I ran 40 yards, you know, you had to find your 40 time. Man, I was a 4'6 in high school. Brother wasn't too fast, but I did what I had to do on the field because I wasn't a long-distance runner unless I had the football in my hand. I hated long-distance running. That may have been why I don't come out to the Music City Marathon. But the thing about a marathon and a sprint is that it takes time for the marathon, but a sprint, you don't need no time. No, I just stopped by here to say Strong Tower Bible Church is not in a sprint. We are in a marathon, and it takes time to train, time to build relationships, time to do the work. And when it's all said and done, we will cross the finish line. And when we cross it, we're going to get ready to run the next race that God has set out for us. Oh, I like that. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Let's see here. What's next on the program? I didn't mess. What's next on the program? Y'all singing? Y'all singing? Oh, man. Yes. All right. We're going to close with this song. <laughs> and so I don't have to go down there and come back up. I'm going to give you the benedictory prayer because I got tired while I was preaching. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm in better shape than that. But I do uh, want to inform you of something. And that is, Within our children's ministry, Pam Rittenauer uh, received two scholarships that she told me about, which will allow her to go to school full time. And so we knew that she was in school when she started working last July, and some scholarships that she had uh, applied for, they just came in. And so because of the two scholarships and being able to go to school full time, she's not going to be able to work as our part-time preschool coordinator. And so as a result of that, Ebony Lovely, our children's ministry director and elementary coordinator, she will stand in the gap and oversee preschool in the interim. So we got to pray for Ebony right now. And so in the meantime, we're going to hire uh, someone to help her with administrative 
uh, things. And then we will hire a preschool coordinator, hopefully in the month of May. But we are going to be just fine. We're going to make it. And uh, on our website, if there's anyone interested and you want to submit a resume, the job descriptions for the uh, assistant, which will be an interim position as well, um, maybe a mom at home or a guy at home, you got some extra time, and you want to come by and say, Pastor, I'll help. Matter of fact, you don't even have to pay me. I'll donate my time. We, we would really like that. <laughs> and then for the, uh, the, the preschool coordinator, that job description will be on the website as well. So we celebrate with Pam, but we also recognize that we have to fill the gap that she will leave, and God will do it because he's sovereign. All right, would you stand to your feet? Would you stand?